I'll invite you now to stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word for the sake of time this morning. I'm going to read just the first section, the first four verses of Genesis 35. God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I go. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them underneath the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for your word that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Father, would we see ourselves this morning in your word as we read again of flawed humanity being used by God for the sake of redemption. Show us our place in this story, God. We thank you, God, for this week as we approach Easter, that in your providence, in the course of time, you sent your son Jesus to rescue us from our sin. Father, as we pray together this week, concluding our 21 days of prayer, as we gather for the Lord's Supper and our, our service focused on the cross, and as we gather next week uh, with others from our community to to celebrate our risen Savior, would we be constantly reminded of your grace towards us, we pray. And let us share that grace with others. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This morning's sermon brings to close the third and longest section of our series in Genesis Knowing that Genesis was going to be a year-long series, I divided it into three parts, the longest of which went from Genesis 12 to here in Genesis 35 and 36. 21 sermons focused on the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, three flawed men whom God used as bearers of his covenantal promise. They have been far from perfect, just as their descendants, as Genesis will continue to show, will also be far from perfect. But in the end, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were faithful. In the end, they become Israel, the people of God. As you read this, as you read these stories and we've considered them week after week together in this series in Genesis, I hope this has been an encouragement to you in that these men are not perfect. They, they didn't have it all together. At times they doubted. At times they were directly disobedient. At times they were deceptive both towards their family and towards outsiders. We saw last week great sin consuming the descendants of Jacob and the surrounding nation. And yet God was still faithful. 
And God was still working and God was still using these men for his glory and for the story that he was telling. Let me remind you this morning before we continue in the text what I told you many months ago when we started this series in Genesis. The main character of these 50 chapters is the Lord. It's not Abraham. It's not Isaac. It's not Jacob. It's not, as we'll see later, Joseph. It's not those who preceded them either. It is the Lord who is at work, who is choosing to use these flawed individuals to bring about his redemptive purpose. So let this be an encouragement to us today as we turn to this text again and still see sin, but also repentance and still see the consequences of those many flaws that have plagued them now into the third and fourth generation. And yet God still chooses to work in their midst. Let that be true of us as well. This text begins with a renewed worship in Israel. As we read there in verses one through four of Genesis 35, God calls Jacob to finally finish his journey to Bethel. And to do so, it is going to require to him to deal with his past. And so Jacob buries the false gods of his past before returning to that place where he had encountered God some, at this point in the story, likely 30 years prior. Really, this chapter serves as a bookend with that previous account of Jacob in Bethel where he is fleeing from his brother. We're told only has his staff with him all alone, going to a land that he did not know. He encounters God there, and God makes his initial covenant promise to the third generation of the patriarchs. 30 years later, still in many ways practicing deception, still in many ways relying on his own ingenuity to provide for himself and for his family, and for even, as we saw in the previous chapter, his own safety. It is now time for the story of Jacob to come to a close. Now, Jacob doesn't die here in this passage. He actually lives all the way to almost the end of Genesis. He lives until the, till Genesis 49, and there are only 50 chapters in Genesis. There is still life in Jacob, but his story ends here. The focus of the text moves on to the fourth generation primarily towards Joseph after these two chapters. But it's here that Jacob renews in his heart the desire to worship God alone. And so God has called him to go to Bethel, that place where he had encountered God so many years before. And he's told to put away the foreign gods. He goes to his household and tells them, put away the foreign gods that are among you some of which his wives, at least one of his wives, had brought up from her father's house in Mesopotamia. He tells them to purify themselves and to change their garments. This is representative. This is representing those impurities that must be put away in dedication to the Lord. It's what Jacob calls his household to do here as a forerunner of the ritual baths that Israelites would take and the generations that follow to purify themselves before entering into the tabernacle or into the temple. It even in many ways is a forerunner of our baptism, the symbolism of washing away of sin. This is what's happening here. As Jacob puts 
his past behind him and moves towards God. Now remember, these are flawed men, and yet the Lord here in this text demands soul allegiance. He demands of Jacob that idolatry and impurity be put away because those things have no place in the worship of the Lord. You'd say, but wait, these were in, Abraham wasn't perfect, Isaac wasn't perfect, Jacob wasn't perfect. We're going to see, we've already seen and we'll continue to see that his children aren't perfect, and neither are we. But the pursuit of holiness is not a half-hearted pursuit. The pursuit of obedience is not one that we're able to say, that we're able to just pick and choose from as if it is a buffet where we get to be obedient in the ways that we want to and not in others. The sanctifying work of God in our lives demands that we serve him alone. And that is what Jacob commits to do here. Demands it of his family. And in a very unceremonious way, and we will see that. I'll use that term several times in this text because Genesis 35 really is, in some ways, just kind of mundane. It's, there's not a lot of fanfare with what happens here in this text as it moved from one account to another, in some cases very, very quickly. He buries those foreign gods underneath an unnamed tree, putting his past behind him. And then Jacob goes to Bethel and worships the Lord alone. Pick up in verse five. As they journeyed, a terror fell from God, a, ter- a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Now stop there before we keep reading. Just remember where we were. If you were here last week, we were in that deep valley of Genesis 34. There's the high of Genesis 32 and 33 before it. The high of Genesis 35, this in, this experience that Jacob has with God at Bethel. And in the, in the depths of that is 34, where we see great sin, great sin of the surrounding nations, but also great sin of Jacob and his descendants and even Jacob himself passive in the face of sin. Really his only interaction is at the very end where he scolds his sons because he's put their family in danger. Not because they've committed genocide, but because they've put their family in danger. And what does he say? You've now opened me up to attack. The the tribes of the Canaanites are going to join together and and we're not going to be protected. We're not going to be able to stand against them. So old Jacob's worried about that. (laughs) If Jacob had just gotten his priorities correct, which he does here, puts all that past behind him, finally in obedience to God, moving towards Bethel. And what does God do? God does exactly what he promised to Jacob that he would do all along. He causes a terror in the people of the land so that none of them pursue him. And this is is God's protection over him. Verse six tells us that he came to Luz. That's what the Canaanites call the area. Jacob called it Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. So looking back decades before, Then verse eight tells us, and Deborah, Rebecca's nurse died and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Anon Bakuth. Now, a couple of things happening here. First, the Lord's going before them, protecting them. He's got his priorities straight. He's seeking after the Lord alone. And the Lord is blessing and honoring that on his way to Bethel. He gets to Bethel, that place that he had been 30 years prior where he had already encountered God once, he encounters God again. Jacob had renamed this place Bethel, Bethel, which means house of God. The word Beth means house, the word El means God, Bethel. Now he calls it El Bethel, 
which means the God of the house of God. Now that seems a little redundant, but it's helpful for us to understand what's happening in this text, that the focus is God. It's why the name, the name of the place is now El Bethel, the God of the house of God. That this is a, that Jacob has dedicated himself to service and worship of God alone. That God is the focus. This isn't the place of Jacob. This isn't the place of Israel or his descendants. This is the place of God. In verse eight, we see a lady named Deborah. We've never been introduced to her. She was actually referenced several chapters before, but not by name. And we're told that she dies. This was Rebecca's nurse at some point. Rebecca's the mother of Jacob. At some point, she must have sent Deborah, her nurse, uh, to Jacob to be with him and to serve his family. She dies, and again, unceremoniously buried under another tree somewhere close to Bethel. Deborah dying brings a, 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 this chapter-long transition from the previous generation to the next. It kind of begins, signifies what the Lord is doing. That, that previous generation is now going to die off and, and there are more deaths still to come. That the focus is changing, which is why this very, very minor character, one that you probably didn't even know was mentioned beforehand, uh, why her passing is mentioned here. Because it's really beginning these, these steps of life and death in Israel. But here in this place of worship, this now El Bethel, God of the house of God, the Lord is going to remind Jacob of both his new name, which he had given him maybe 10 years prior, and of his covenant promise, which he had repeated to him 30 years prior. Pick up in verse 9. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padam Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel and God said to him, I am God almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come for you and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him and, God, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Again, these bookends with 30 years of his life in between, two encounters with God where God first makes his promise to Jacob, the same promise that he had made to Abraham and Isaac, and now God reiterates that promise to him here in this same moment. But there's some things that we can, should notice from this text. As God reminds Jacob of his new name, you're no longer Jacob, you're now Israel, you're now the one who strives with God, you're now the one for whom God strives. And there are four promises that God communicates to him in verses 11 and 12. The first one is, I think, kind of interesting that God Almighty says, be fruitful and multiply. To be fruitful and multiply was not part of God's promise to Abraham. It was part of God's covenantal promise with Adam. That what God is doing here in Jacob's life is he's not just tying him back Two generations prior, he's tying him back to the work of God that has been in existence since God created the heavens and the earth. That Jacob is part of a broader story that God has been telling since the beginning, and God is still telling to this day. Jacob, 
be fruitful and multiply. To borrow those words from the creation account is to remind Jacob that he is part of something much bigger than himself. He's also told that he'll be a great nation. A nation and a company of nations shall come for you. This mirrors the promise of God to Abraham where God said, I'll make you into a great nation. Before Abraham even had children, it was just he and his wife. They didn't have any children. And God said, I'm going to make you a great nation. And through that nation, all of the nations of the world will be blessed. That continues now into Jacob's life, reiterated by God. Number three, he's told, and kings shall come from your own body. Now, this was a promise that God made to Abraham and Isaac and again to Jacob. That not only are you going to be a great nation, but directly in the line of your descendants will come kings. Now, this is going to matter when we get to chapter 36. Chapter 36 of Genesis is, really stands as unique. Sometimes people wonder why in the world this is there. I'm going to seek to answer that question here in just a few minutes. But keep in your mind that God has promised to Jacob that from his descendants would be a line of kings. Because when we get to 36, kings are going to be mentioned again. That's the third promise that God gives to him. The fourth is a promise of land. This, again, same promise that he's made to the generations prior to him. That in verse 12, the land that I gave Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you and will give the lamb to your offspring after you. God is continuing to work within the patriarchs to bring about his covenantal relationship with that family, but ultimately his promise of redemption for the world. So Jacob buries the gods of his past, finally goes to Bethel where God had called him to go all those years before, and God reiterates this promise to him. And that's really kind of where we leave the spiritual high of Jacob. This mountaintop that we experienced beyond the Jordan River, divided by that valley in, in chapter 34 and, and, and at the top again. And then we get this secession really of this description of the continuation of life in Israel in the rest of this chapter. And it's one quick event after another, told really in a very succinct and even mundane way. Just as we saw the gods buried underneath a tree and we saw Deborah buried underneath a tree and there wasn't a whole lot of ceremony and there wasn't a whole lot said about it, the same is going to be true about these next events that we see in, in fairly rapid succession. Just kind of bringing to close this wild life of Jacob, this, this story of Jacob that's now going to transition. And we'll see these things happen very quickly. The first is that Rachel gives birth to Benjamin and, die, and dies. Look at verse 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, do not fear for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Onai, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent uh, beyond the tower of Eder. So here, Rachel, the favored wife, one of the four women that uh, bore children to Jacob, is the final one, uh, final one of his wives to conceive. And she gives birth 
to the child who would be known as Benjamin. She's in difficult labor, knows she is going to die. And all of, the, all of the children of Israel were named by their mothers. And if you'll remember from several chapters before, the naming wasn't always good. It was very often a jab at the, at the sister. So it was Rachel naming children, uh, kind of jabbing at Leah, Leah naming children, jabbing back at Rachel. But here, Rachel again tries to name the child and she names him literally son of my distress. That's what ben I means, son of my distress. But, ben, but Jacob, for, for, for once, steps in and says, no, that's not what we're going to name him. Names him son of my right hand. That this is his youngest son. Many of his children, already, they were already grown up enough to go off to battle and to uh, commit the sins that we saw in the previous chapter and sins that we'll see in this chapter. So this is by far the youngest Benjamin is favored son of, jo- of Jacob. You could say apple of his father's eye in one sense. Joseph will also be that uh, as far as the grown sons go uh, that we will see in the coming chapters. So Rachel dies and Rachel isn't buried in the same place where Jacob will eventually be buried. He's not buried in the same place as the previous generation. She's buried in Bethlehem. Just again, fairly unceremoniously, buried on the way home. Then the shortest little account that happens here in 35 is Reuben's sins in verse 22. And it's only just part of verse 22. This, this you could think would be a huge event and it comes back into play in Genesis 49. But here it's just briefly mentioned. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel heard of it. What a terrible, egregious sin, both against the Lord and against his father, that Reuben would go in and have sexual relations with a woman who had borne children to his father. And all we're told is that Israel heard of it. We're not told there's any reaction whatsoever. We're not told that there's, there's any consequences until we get to Genesis 49, and there's great consequences. So why remind us of this? Why remind us of how sinful the children of Jacob are? Because we need to know, we need to be reminded that the next generation continues in their sin. We already saw the second and third son of Jacob sin greatly in committing genocide and deceptive with the Lord's promise in Genesis 34. And now this is son number one. This is his oldest son committing such an egregious act. It will matter, even though we don't see a response here. It will matter in Genesis 49. But for now, it's just a brief reminder that all is still not well in Jacob's household. Next, Jacob's lineage is complete. We get a very brief and concise genealogy starting at the end of verse 22. Now the sons of Jacob were 12. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Padan Aram. So we get this very brief genealogy. It's actually very concise when you compare it to the genealogy we're going to consider in just a moment in Genesis 36. You have 12 names versus 73 names of this great juxtaposition of these two different genealogies. But these are the sons of Jacob and his line is now complete. 
Genesis 35 concludes with the death of Isaac, who's not been mentioned for chapters, but finally Jacob gets home and he's home in time to bury his father alongside his brother Esau. Verse 27 tells us, and Jacob came to his father Isaac at Marm, or Karath or Ba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. And Isaac breathed his last and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his son Esau and Jacob buried him. Now this, like the death and burial of Deborah, again signifies this transition in the story that we're moving from the focus of one generation to the next. It's the same thing that happened when Abraham died. This focus shifted uh, away from Isaac towards Jacob and Esau. And now that Isaac dies, the focus is going to shift towards Joseph and his brothers, the sons of Jacob. And the death of Isaac mirrors the death of Abraham. It's in many ways uses the same exact words and he's buried by two sons, one a son of promise and one a son of the world. Just as Isaac and Ishmael had buried Abraham, Esau and Jacob bury Isaac. In many ways, the second half of Genesis 35 is just to complete the story, but it also tells us how life continues to go on. People are born, people die, people sin. And we see that continual pattern here in this story. Then we get to chapter 36. And if you've ever read, and I hope you have, through the book of Genesis, you get to 36 and you think, why in the world do I need to know this? This is the longest list of names since the table of nations, some 25 chapters ago. Why do I need to know this? Why why is this here? Why do these people matter? None of these people are part of Israel. And it's very clear, these people are all a part of Edom, which is a whole different nation. Why, Why include this here? Particularly, why include a genealogy with 73 names, which dwarfs the 12 listed in the previous chapter? Why give so much attention to it? Well, I hope to be able to answer that for us as we see the rejection of the Lord's ways by Esau. We're gonna see three things that Esau does here, really two things that he does and then a description of his, uh, the generations after him that, that should enlighten us to why this is here and connect it to the previous chapter. First is that Esau marries Canaanite women. Now we already knew that. Esau had married Canaanite women um, and his mother and father did not like them and it was why they sent Jacob away uh, to uh, Mary from their homeland. We see this in verse, uh, verses one through three. These are the generations of Esau. That is Edom. That's the first of three times that we're told that Esau is Edom and it matters. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Anna, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Ahoblamah, which is probably the best one in the list, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of uh, Zibion, the Hivite, and Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Neboioth. Now, so why, why does this matter? Well, it matters that he married all the wrong women. So he's in, Esau is in direct disobedience to what the Lord had intended for Abraham's descendants. So we see it in his marriages. Next, we see disobedience in where he chooses to live. Esau moves away from the promised land in, in verses six through eight. Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojourning could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. So in verse one and verse eight, we're given this 
authorial note that tells us who Esau is, that Esau's descendants become Edom, and he has moved now into what becomes, during the time of this writing, the land of Edom, which is a nation that, particularly during the Exodus, opposed the Israelites during their wandering and their conquest of Canaan. So Esau has Esau has uh, rejected the Lord's ways by who he marries, and now Esau rejects the Lord's ways by where he lives. And you say, wait, isn't he excused here? Doesn't it say in verse 7 that his possessions were too great? He couldn't live in the same place? Listen, he could have moved north. He could have moved west, but he doesn't. He moves south and east. And anytime the people go south or east, it pretty much is telling us they're rejecting the direction that God would have for them. So Esau in his actions is rejecting the Lord. And then we get to this big list of his descendants. And Esau's descendants further grow the kingdom of man, not the kingdom of God, but they become great in the kingdom of man. Now we're not going to read all of these names, but I wanna read you the parts that I think are important that show us what's happening. So start in verse 15. These are the chiefs of the son of Esau, the son of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chiefs, Teman, Omar, Zepho, Canaz, Korah, Gadam, Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the, in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Adah. So they're what? Chiefs. Then we get down to verse 30. These are the kings who reigned who reign in the land of Edom before any king reigned over Israel. That's important. Go back to the previous chapter. Kings will come for your line. But before that, before any king ever comes from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Numerous kings, and they're listed here, numerous kings come from uh, the line of Esau. Kings that had reigned uh, for a very long time, for generation after generation. But if you were to read that list, you would notice that never once does a son inherit his father's throne. That this is a broken line. This is a broken family defined by sin. Then we get to verse 40. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau, according to the clans of their dwelling place, by their names. You get to the end in verse 43. Um, The chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of Edom, the third time we're reminded of that, according to their dwelling place in the land of their possession. Now, I know this can sometimes be a lot. And so some of you are thinking, why why in the world does this matter? Like, why? Why does it matter? Why do we need to know generation after generation and who the kings of Edom were and who the chiefs and the tribal leaders of Edom were? It's not so much about knowing who they are. Their names are recorded here in the scriptures. They're lost for antiquity, okay? It's not so much about knowing who they are. It's about seeing this big, see the big picture. You have chiefs mentioned twice. You have kings. You have Edom mentioned three times. This whole big, long genealogy. the the second longest genealogy in the book of Genesis, dwarfing this small little group of 12 names. But why it matters is because it is following a pattern that has already been established in Genesis, where we're told that the unfavored line, and Esau is the unfavored line, that the unfavored line grows in worldly prominence. We see it all the way back in Genesis 4, where Cain, this is, you know, first descendants of, Abraham, of, of Adam and Eve, that Cain killed Jacob, right? And he goes off where? East, towards sin. Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. So here we have right at the very beginning of the spread of man on the face of the earth, 
the unfavored line, because the favored line would come through Seth of the third son of Adam and Eve, the unfavored line through Cain becomes these city builders. Then we get to the story of Abraham and his sons, Isaac and Ishmael. And we read in Genesis 25, these are the sons of Ishmael. He was the unfavored line, the sons of Ishmael. And these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, 12 princes according to their tribes. So Cain becomes a city builder. Uh, Ishmael, the father of 12 princes of over 12 different tribes. So this is the progression that we see in Genesis is that the unfavored line becomes prominent in the world. And the world thinks that sort of thing's important. If you don't know this story and you just look at the genealogy of Jacob and you look at the genealogy of Esau, you're likely to believe from a worldly perspective that the genealogy of Esau is much more impressive. Kings and chiefs from generation to generation. And we keep all that in our mind, this huge genealogy. And then we read the first verse of Genesis 37, which in truth, probably, you know, the chapters and verses were added later. The first verse of Genesis 37 actually speaks to all of Genesis 36. Listen to it. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojourning in the land of Canaan. There is a great contrast between simple obedience in the land and all of these great chiefs and kings that come from Esau. That worldly prominence, worldly position, worldly power is nothing compared to simple obedience that we finally see in Jacob living in the land that God had told him to live in. That's why it's there. And I know it's a lot, but that's why it's there. The world's ways are not God's ways. So what? The Lord uses flawed yet faithful followers to continue his redemptive work. In many ways, church, this is the so what, the application for the entire middle section of Genesis. From Genesis 12 now here through Genesis 36. That God keeps his promises even when his followers fail. That the redemptive work of our Lord carries on in the face of disobedience, doubt, and deception. Why continue in this way? Why, why, why does the Lord continue to tell the stories through such flawed people? Because by using the weak, it demonstrates the great providence and power of God. It shows us that he is the one at work. It should give us encouragement today to recognize that those who God was using in ancient times were not perfect, just as we're not perfect. It's, It's one of the reasons why I trust the word of God as truth. Because nobody would write these stories about their ancestors. They make them look so bad. They make them look like they don't have it all together. Like this is obviously inspired by God because only God would tell this kind of story. Only God would show how Abraham was so doubtful that that God would protect him, that he would go to Egypt and lie about his relationship with his wife. Only God would use a guy like Jacob, deceiver from the very beginning, grabbing at his brother's heel. Only God would use these kind of men because God is the one telling this story. He is the one at work. And so we take that into the New Testament understanding of God's redemptive plan. And we read this from Paul's letter, his first letter to the church at Corinth. 
He says this to him. Now notice just these first three words in 1 Corinthians 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Let me just stop there for a minute and remind you of something. If you read the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you think, man, those are just some flawed, terrible guys. I'm glad I'm not them. I'm glad I'm not like them. I'm glad I got life figured out. Listen, if that's your response, I really wonder if you ever have truly understood the gospel. Because to truly understand the gospel, we have to understand what Paul is saying here when he says, for consider your calling brothers. And he's about to describe who they were. And listen to how he describes them and see if this fits you. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring, to, to bring nothing to things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to... Who, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. These last 23 chapters here in Genesis, we ought to find ourselves in the flaws of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We ought to be able to identify with the deception and the doubt we ought, to, we ought to be able to identify with, these, uh, with the sins that they so often embraced because we too were once controlled by those things. We too were foolish. We too were without power of our own. We too were not well thought of. But God, in, in, in his wondrous work in our lives, chooses to take that which is weak and foolish and make it strong, not for our sake, but for, but for his, which is why Paul ends this section in that way. Let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. We too are foolish and weak used by God so that our only boast will be in him, so that I'll be able to say, I didn't have anything to do with saving myself. I, I, I didn't have anything to do with being right with God. It wasn't on me. Because listen, if it was on me, I would have utterly failed. If it was on you, my friend, you would have utterly and totally and completely failed. And if that's what you're relying on today, understand something. It is a fool's errand and you will never achieve it. But if you will recognize that you can't do it, but that God can and has through the person and work of Jesus Christ, then you too can become what God makes wise and what God makes strong and what God makes good. That's the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not these giants of the faith overcoming. It's God overcoming for them and God working through them to continue to tell his story that eventually gets us to Jesus, who is the wisdom of God, who is the power of God, who is the perfect one who died in our place so that we might live. That's the truth of the gospel, my friend. Not that you have to make yourself into something good, but that God through Jesus can make you into something that you could never be on your That's the story of Genesis. It's the story of redemption. It's the story of the Bible. And it's the story of the church still today. God making wise out of fools. Let's thank him for that. Father, we thank you now that we can't do it, but you did.
Forgive us, God, for exalting things of this world, for thinking the, the worldly wise and the worldly powerful and chiefs and kings are important when all we're called to do is dwell in the land of our God. Help us to do that, to put away the things of our past, to turn our backs on the idols of this world and turn towards you, and walking in you in obedience, Christ-likeness in the image of your son, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.